Welcome back to the Gene Wolfe Literary Podcast by Clay Temple Media. I'm Brandon Buddha. And I'm Glenn McDorman, and we are back with an extra episode to celebrate reaching our first crowdfunding goal on Patreon. This goal was just to get us to the point where our monthly expenses are covered, and that is, uh, it's, a, it's a pretty huge deal for the longevity of the show. And in exchange for that, we had a vote among our patrons to pick three extra episodes to do for them. Those are all done and available on Patreon now. They've been up there for months, really. But because this was such a big deal for us, we decided to go ahead and record the runners-up and share those with everyone just as a kind of bonus. So that's a total of five extra episodes just for getting to our first goal. And we really just want to thank everyone for all of their support. Yes, we really do want to thank our listeners so much who have helped us reach these goals. It's a it's a huge deal to us. And if you know anybody who's interested in science fiction, in Gene Wolfe, in weird fiction or Star Trek, please get the word out about us. We love to share our podcast with as many listeners as we can. It's a great joy for us to do. And it's a great joy to interact with our listeners and fans on our forum and on Patreon. This episode, we're talking about the short story Winter's King by Ursula K. Le Guin. This story was originally published in Orbit 5 in 1969. And we read it in the story collection, The Wind's Twelve Quarters. And this story is part of Le Guin's heinous cycle, or what what fans call the heinous cycle. Anyway, she didn't really like that name that much. And it is set on the same world as The Left Hand of Darkness, her probably most famous novel. But she wrote this short story first, and there are some differences in the the setting and and simply some bits of the the world that don't really add up between the story and the novel. And actually, this is one of the reasons that Le Guin doesn't like the idea of thinking of every story she wrote about the Hain as part of some sort of story continuity. But really, I bring this up at the start here just to say, that one of the big things that is different between the short story and the novel is the gender of the humanoid species on the planet Winter. This is a major feature of The Left Hand of Darkness, but she hadn't thought of that yet when she wrote this story. But she went back and added some of that into the version that's printed in this collection to kind of smooth that out. But it doesn't really matter all that much to the plot. But I wanted to bring that up just in case you read this story in its original form back in 1969 or just happen to have a copy of Orbit 5 around. You'll hear us using some different gender pronouns here. Right. And in the recap, I'm going to stick to Le Guin's choices that she made in her re-edited version of the story for The Wind's Twelve Quarters, which is to refer to all roles of leadership in the masculine form, but refer to all genders in the feminine form, uh, feminine pronouns. So you'll hear me refer to the king as her. I think it's a wonderful effect for reading the story. Well, with that caveat out of the way, I'm really excited to get into this story. So let's not stand in the way of it anymore. Brandon, walk us through this one. I want to begin the recap of the story by just giving a quick note on the structure of the story, which is broken up in terms of what Le Guin calls pictures rather than chapters. And she wants us to imagine what is going on in terms of these pictures. And I also want to begin by reading the opening paragraph of the story, which is just beautifully written. And I think it's worthwhile to give our listeners a sense of the prose in the story. So the story opens this way. When whirlpools appear in the onward run of time, and history seems to swirl around a snag, as in the curious matter of the succession of Carhide, then pictures come in handy, snapshots, which may be taken up and matched to compare the parent to the child, the young king to the old, and which may also be rearranged and shuffled till the years run straight. For despite the tricks played by instantaneous interstellar communication and just sub-lightspeed interstellar travel, time, as the plenipotentiary axed remarked, does not reverse itself, nor is death mocked. I love this opening. It is super evocative, and it's really quite gripping as well, but also she is laying out what the themes are, at least what the central motifs are going to be in this story right off the bat. And, you know, one of the things she does here, really, even in that very first sentence, is give us a metaphor that envisions time as a body of water that can develop whirlpools and that envisions history as something that travels on that body of water and which can be snagged somehow. Uh, obviously, this screams philosophy of history and philosophy of time, and especially since it really 
hasn't actually been that long since we covered a story by John B. Marsh. So uh, we'll take this up in the discussion. But narratively, all all of this suggests that time is going to be a variable that's at play here. So we need to keep our eyes on that. This invocation of pictures, of photographs, the word word snapshot, right, suggests or teases this idea anyway that the narrator isn't writing a story, that the narrator is showing us photographs of important events and then telling us how they are connected and in what order they ought to be arranged. And this is not literally true. It's used here metaphorically. But I think this is a really big deal about what Le Guin is doing here with the motif of time and the motif of history. So we'll be taking that up in the discussion as well. Right. It's also important to point out something that I missed on my first reread of the story, that in this opening paragraph full of beautiful prose, which I get lost in as a reader whenever I come across it, I often lose the content of what the author is trying to communicate. <laughs> then not only is this a story about time and the, the weird effects of time in this technological period that the narrator is writing about, it is also about the succession of this kingship in Carhide. And that is also really important. It is core to the story. This is a story about kings and their successors. Right. And we could actually envision this story being told to someone who has grown up on this planet that will come to know as winter throughout the story. That This is something that happened like 500 years ago. And it's this famous event and everybody's heard of it. Let me tell you what it was really like for the people who were involved. That's the beginning of this story. It's a kind of a once upon a time opening, but done with some extremely uh, vivid prose, sophisticated philosophical concepts here, and uh, all sorts of language to clue us in that this is a science fiction story. So Le Guin is doing a lot in this opening paragraph. It's masterful. Yeah, it's incredible. Well, this opening paragraph leads the reader into a description of the first picture or the first snapshot we are to consider in this story. It's of the young king of winter standing above an old king who lies dead in a corridor lit only by reflections of a burning city. But this image will take the telling of this story for us to really understand, for it to come into its own fruition. Rather, we should look now at the young king who was only 22, who has lost her mind and is filthy and is muttering to herself, I will abdicate, I will abdicate, I will abdicate. In her mind, the king can see her palace, though she is not there. A person dressed in red and white enters her room to reveal a plot against her life, which has been discovered at the artisan school. The king wants these intrusions, the intrusions of people and the intrusions of her thoughts in her own mind and her own current situation to stop. So she orders the execution of the assassins. The humming that is taking place in the background and her own plaguing thoughts immediately stop as she orders this execution. She falls to the floor and she is safe now in the tower room of her own palace in her nursery. And now a person dressed in black enters, and this person asks the king who she is, who the person dressed in black is. The king thinks and is under immense psychic pressure as she's thinking until she can answer. It's Gerer. The name is Gerer. Now the person in red and white asks their name. It's Rebade. She asks them to tell her what to do, and they tell her to sleep, and so she does. The king now dreams, though she is not sure if she's asleep or awake. She's standing at the palace balconies. The crowd calls her name and is taunting her and jeering at her. This makes the king furious, and the king wishes to silence the crowd. Rebate asks what the king will do. She answers that she will abdicate. But that's the wrong answer. So Rebate asks again and prompts her with the words for the correct answer. The king now prompted, says that she will call upon the Urinrang guard and have them shoot their guns into the crowd. She's rewarded for making this order with Rebade's affirmation. The king feels terrible about this. And then a person in red and white enters the room, revealing a plot to assassinate the king, starting the cycle over again. Something is obviously wrong with the the young king's mental state here. And madness is something that is extremely tough to write. Most writers are are pretty bad at doing it in a way that is convincing, but also not irritating to read. And I'm really impressed with Le Guin's ability to do that here. I think she does a great job with it. And I'm especially drawn to this 
cyclical nature of this, right? It's as if this young mad king here is stuck in a kind of time loop uh, or almost like a, a hall of mirrors seeing, seeing reflections. But the writing of this doesn't feel trippy or mind-bendy for the reader. All of the information is conveyed in a way that both uh, captures the feeling of this but also is coherent for us to read. And I'm very happy about that. It's incredible. And it is really difficult to read the first time through the story because you have no idea what's going on. And the way Le Guin moves us through the plot, it takes eight or 10 pages for us to understand what the opening of the story is. Well, Le Guin does move us along. And now she moves us down to Harbor Street, where a city guard, guard Pepinerer, is making her rounds. The guard heads into an alley and sees a drunk person kind of wavering around and falling. She goes to investigate and discovers that the person is not drunk. Rather, they've been drugged. Pepinera turns the person over and pulls out a quarter crown piece and compares the face of the coin to the drugged person. They're the same face. It is King Argaven, whom the bulletins reported as being out hunting for the past several weeks. This was obviously not the case. We move now to the palace. The king's physician, Hoga, is explaining to Gerer about the king's situation. The king has been mind-formed by some criminal parties in Carhide or Orgerain. The ways in which the king has been mind-formed will only be revealed in time through the triggers that have been buried in her mind. And the only people who might be able to help the king are the aliens. But they likely do not have advanced enough mind science to do anything at this point. The only hope, Hoga goes on to explain, lies within the king herself. The hope that she was resolute enough to provide her own escape route in her mind once she knew how she was being broken and that she was being broken. Gerer and Hoga speak about these things as the king sits on her bed, sleeping, apparently, or staring out into the icy landscape and at the stars. Gerer's fears here are that the king is lost, that her mind is completely gone, and that she's become a lunatic or a fool. She's been tortured for 13 days, and there may be brain damage. And the king, looking around her, emits only hatred and fear from her eyes. Argaven now looks at Gerer and begins to ask about her child. Gerer explains that Emran is well, that she is being attended to. The king now asks where she is and what is wrong with her. Garen tells her that she is in her own room in the palace and that they do not know where she has been. Garen explains how the council has explained the king's absence with these various bulletins, one of which we just read. And this is part of Le Guin's technique to kind of fill in the information we just got now here in this story. So everything we got up to this point has taken place as we would expect, but the confusion is being cleared up for us. And we get a kind of a treat to cruise the minds of the commoners in the city here. And we learned that many people in the city know of the king's habit to wander the streets after dark in disguises. And many of them are not shocked to learn that through this type of foolish behavior, this behavior that maybe isn't becoming of a king, something has befallen her on one of her outings, in this case, the propaganda of the hunting outing. The king summons Gerer and tells Gerer of her wish to abdicate, but Gerer will not allow it. This is really the, the third section of this story. And not only does Le Guin here clear up some of the confusion that we've got at the opening and let us know what's actually going on, this is really where we get the the biggest chunk of world-building activity here as well. And I just want to read a bit of it because uh, I think she does a really marvelous job of, of describing what this world is like. And this is how she describes the, the palace. The temperature of that room in the king's palace of Arenrang was 12 degrees Celsius, where Lord Gerer stood, and 5 degrees midway between the two big fireplaces. Outside, it was snowing lightly, a mild day, only a few degrees below freezing. Spring had come to winter. The fires at either end of the room roared red and gold, devouring thigh-thick logs. Magnificence, a harsh luxury, a quick splendor. Fireplaces, fireworks, lightning, meteors, volcanoes— such things satisfied the people of Carhide on the world called winter. But except in Arctic colonies above the 35th parallel, they had never installed central heating in any building in the many centuries of their age of technology. Comfort was allowed to come to them rare, welcome, unsought, 
a gift like joy. It's a beautiful paragraph, but the world building itself is just so vivid here. It's so evocative, right? We, we learn almost kind of nonchalantly that the name of this planet is called winter. And this detail here about how even in spring, it is still nearly freezing. And the Arctic zone on this planet is anything above the 35th parallel, which on our world would mean all of Europe and anything north of Alabama in the United States, right? So this just tells us so much about how strange this world would be to us. And Le Guin also does an awesome job here of blending the furniture of fantasy and science fiction in the story, mixing them up together and making them into a, a kind of a whole, right? We're in a strange kingdom of perpetual winter, and there are fireplaces and castles and kings. The insides of this building, as I just read, are kept warm by, by fires, and people use the word liege here. All of this is fantasy stuff. But then we have also very casually, nonchalantly here, we have the mention of aliens, and there are stun guns, there's brainwashing and radio communications. On top of that, we have a real Cold War era concern with propaganda, mass broadcast communications, and a populace who is concerned about that information. Controlling what the people know about the king's health is important to the king's advisors, but rather than hide the fact that she's ill, they admit that and then lie about what caused it. And that is all concerns of like a science fiction story, not really a fantasy story. And so she has just woven these two together in really just a few paragraphs next to each other to tell us everything we need to know about the setting of this story. And it's such beautiful prose. It is so dense and evocative, as you say, Glenn. And it's really easy, as as I kind of said in the opening of this episode, to get lost in the prose itself and miss how much work Le Guin is doing to give us a sense of this world. And I, I'm i absolutely in love with it. I read The Left Hand of Darkness a while ago, and reading this story made me want to go back and reread it, which I probably will do in the near future. Well, at this point in the story, we're given a new snapshot, a new picture. And the picture we're given is of King Argaven Seventeenth, who is in good health and in fine clothes and eating breakfast with her court. Mr. Mobile Axed, the plenipotentiary of winter from the ecumen of known worlds, is late for breakfast, but he arrives to the audience hall on time. Axed speaks to Gerer about the king. Gerer confides in Axed that the king has not been sick. That one night, six weeks ago, the king went on one of her walks and did not return. A messenger brought Gerer a note in the middle of the night, saying that if they announced the king's disappearance, she would be killed. But if they waited for half a month, the king would be returned unharmed. Thirteen days later, she was found wandering in the city and had been mind-formed. And the king at this point still believes that she must abdicate the throne. Argaven intrudes on this conversation and is very glad to receive acts to the plenipotentiary. Axed has been summoned by Argaven for reasons unknown, but Axed is glad to come and see the king. Argaven admits that she was kidnapped, and that all of this is the standard, if not formal, sort of practice committed by criminals in her state and her neighboring states, though they are still unsure of who kidnapped her and why. They left no trace of who they were in her mind. But one thing she is certain of is that these people did not tell her to abdicate the throne. And that this choice is one safe option that she has. And if she makes this choice, she knows that she won't be acting under the control of the criminals. She'll know that she has not become the servant and the tool of the criminals. Axed is quick to understand all of this. And he understands that if Art Gavin abdicates, the heir can resume rulership when she is of age. But Axed is suspicious that perhaps the criminals have already predicted this sort of chain of decisions and have chosen the region who will rule in the place of Argaven while the heir comes of age. The king doesn't really believe that this is the case at all, and she claims that she will name Gerer as regent. Gerer, the king says, serves no faction. Argaven asks Axed at this point if the science of his people could undo what has been done to her. It's possible, Axed replies, but only at the Institute on Olul, another planet. And it would take someone from Olul from the time Axed contacted them, which could be instantaneous, 24 years to reach winter, 
and the king would have to rule during that time because the council won't let her abdicate. And here we learn something of the goal of the ecumen. Their goal is to connect all the humanoids on the various planets in the galaxy together to weave harmony between them. They all share a common ancestor of the Hain. But harmony has not yet been achieved, and that really doesn't matter that much, because the true pleasure of this activity is in its trying, not in achieving harmony. The pleasure of trying to achieve harmony has also been Argaven's goal, but it's over now. There is no way in her mind that she can remain king given what has happened to her. Her only options are to abdicate or commit suicide, and she has no desire to commit suicide. So Axed must help her. We get a real sense of this young king here who is motivated both by a desire to not be anyone's puppet, to not be anyone's tool, but also by a clear sense of duty and love of her country, of understanding that whoever is doing this to her, whoever is trying to brainwash her to to be able to control her is doing it because they have ill ends in mind. And so she's trying to do anything that she can to prevent that from happening. And this is a, a real struggle. And it seems like her advisors don't sympathize with that struggle. They don't share her concerns, that their concerns are something else entirely. And this perhaps loneliness of being the king is is, is something that I think Le Guin wants us to be thinking about. I love, again, all of the, the massive world building that we get in this section about the real science fiction setting here, the real kind of space opera setting of the Hainish cycle here. And I love the ecumen of the known worlds. As much as I love Star Trek, ecumen of the known worlds is way cooler than the United Federation of Planets. And using the word ecumen here, it's a Greek word that means household, implies a much closer connection among these worlds than does the word federation, which by its nature implies something ad hoc. And, and temporary. So even though we've got characters here talking about how you can never completely achieve harmony, it's it's only the quest for harmony that matters. It's, it's a sort of Vince Lombardi thing, right? Winning isn't everything. It's the only thing worth striving for. It's the same thing here, except harmony instead of winning, which it's probably a better life philosophy. Uh, but I really enjoy this. And I, I think we'll, we'll end up talking about this quite a bit in the discussion as well. I agree. And I love the goals of the ecumen, though they're kind of doing something similar to what the criminals do by the time we get to the end of the story. And I hope we get to talk about what their goals are and what their ends are as well. Right. We should keep in mind that while this book is being written in the real world, there's a Cold War going on, and that might have some influence here. We're taken to a brief aside here where it's night and it's rainy and icy outside, and the king visits her child and leaves the child with the ring of the king, the right of rulership. Here, the king blesses Emron, her child, and tells her to be a good ruler when she grows up, and places her cheek on the child's cheek as the child sleeps. And this image will return to us at the end of the story. Le Guin transitions us to a place of no picture. And the reason why we can't get a snapshot of this period in the king's life is because it's too dark. The king is voyaging to Alul. Axed has already sent notice to the planet that she will be arriving, and finally, she does arrive. She lands 24 years after she left in real time, though only 17 hours in relative time, on the planet Alul. She is greeted by a contingent of people, but only one who speaks her language, who was trained in her language as they awaited her arrival. Immediately, Argaven asks for news of her country. Lord Gerard's rule, we learned, was uneventful and benign. The heir, Emran, has been ruling now for seven years. She took the crown when she was 18. Argaven is referred uh, to by the people on Alul as Mr. Harga, and Argaven is taken to the Institute to be essentially deprogrammed here. The mind scientists at the Institute discover the trigger, which was the report of the assassination, and reveal the likely plot of the mind formers. Argaven was to become increasingly paranoid of assassinations, and as a result, increasingly tyrannical, which would destroy her nation. And they assure her that she has done the right thing by abdicating. Argaven spends her time now on a lull. She attends the ecumenical school and lives in the barracks with the other aliens, who are only of a single sex, and they spend too much time in Kemmer. The planet is too hot for Argaven, and she wishes she could go back home. She learns only what the ecumenical school will allow her to learn, 
And she also learns later on that they have a use for her. They basically want to train her in the ways of the ecumenical teachings and of the ecumenical council and send her back to rule on winter. She can be useful to them there. And here we learn that the passage of time has taken 12 years and it is time for her to return. Right. Here's where we get this kind of Cold War context of the acumen of the known worlds looking to increase its membership, increase perhaps its influence in the galaxy and doing that by propping up friendly dictators, I guess, in uh, in what perhaps really here amounts to something like the equivalent of a third world country, right? This is uh, not a metaphor, I think, that would be lost on anyone reading this story for the first time in, in 1969, in the real high moments of this, right? In the midst of the, the Vietnam War, which is a proxy war all about doing exactly this sort of thing. That's the real darkness in this story. I want to take us back to something that I think is really beautiful in this story, which is her description of space travel, which is some of the most gorgeous writing, I think, that I've ever encountered. So I just want to read the whole paragraph where she describes this voyage. Now there is no picture, no seeing her. With what eye will you watch a process that is 100 millionth percent slower than the speed of light? She is not now a king, nor a human being. She is translated. You can scarcely call fellow mortal one whose time passes 70,000 times slower than yours. She is more than alone. It seems that she is not, any more than uncommunicated thought is, that she goes nowhere, any more than a thought goes. And yet, at very nearly, but never quite the speed of light, she voyages. She is the voyage, quick as thought. She has doubled her age when she arrives, less than a day older, in the portion of space curved about a dust moat named Olul, the fourth planet of a yellowish sun. And all this has passed in utter silence. What an awesome, awesome way to describe this. We get enough physics here, enough technology talk here to, to let us know that this is a, a scientific feat, a scientific marvel. But there's no terrible Trek, no babble here. Nobody's recalibrating anything. There are no impulse manifolds or any of the other horrible things that uh, so often our space opera gets into. She has just done this with just sheer artistry that captures both this as a scientific marvel, but also as this just aesthetic, almost sort of mystical journey that a person could do this. A person can move faster than time somehow. It's so cool. It's so good. Yeah, it's almost impressionistic rather than technical. It's so good. All of the prose in this story is absolutely outstanding, and I can't recommend it enough to our listeners if they haven't picked up a copy of this book already. Well, Argaven does a similar voyage back to her own planet, Winter. She lands off the coast of Carhide on Horden Island. This place is described like an inactive volcano that is occasionally active. She's met there by those loyal to her rule and loyal to her name as king. Her loyals bow to her as king and bring her up to speed on the news of her kingdom. King Emran still reigns, although Argaven has been absent for 60 years. Emran, we learn, is basically just a mess. She's a bad leader and she is broken with the ecumen. She splintered the kingdom and lost land that Argaven I had won. And remember, this is Argaven Seventeenth, and it sounds like the names alternate every time an heir is born, which we'll learn at the end of the story here. They're either Argaven or Emran. These loyals want Argaven to rule, but Argaven says that she is dead and has been dead for 60 years. And one person here replies, the king is dead. Long live the king. So Argaven goes on a conquest to wrest power back from Emran. Emran has not produced a legitimate heir, though she has named one of her illegitimate heirs, Givri, to be the heir to the throne. And this really upsets Argaven, as kings should only be called Emran or Argaven. And now we're at the end of the story. We have our final picture, which was also our first picture. The battle has been fought. The old king is Emran who was without aid when her country rose against her. With a gun, Amran kills herself, and Argaven, still young, stoops over the body and prepares to take the old ring of rule back from Amran. But she decides to let Amran keep the ring. She whispers into the dead ear and presses her cheek against that of her child's, as she did before she left 12 years ago in relative time. 
Then Argaven stands up and goes to set her house back in order. The house of Argaven, Winter's king. And this is where the story ends. What strikes me the most in this last act of the story is that the king, Argaven, doesn't hesitate in using violence to retake the throne when she returns to, to Winter. And this is violence against her own child. And uh, this will lead directly into the, the first thing I want to talk about in the discussion. Yeah, before we jump into that, I just want to say one thing here, which is the sorts of things that Argaven was taunted with come to pass in her absence, which is crazy. This is a sort of inevitability or fate involved in her mind forming that is really hard to wrestle with in this story. Well, I think that thinking about fate or, or destiny in this story is right. I think that's something that is lurking here in between the lines of the text. And this, there's something about this king, about Argaven, that seems in some way almost kind of supernatural, right? This is a big story. It's a heroic story about this figure who is removed from her time. That's literally a line we get in the story. And then comes back, is legally dead for all intents and purposes, but is actually now alive again. This is, a, this is the good king returned in a moment of need. Kingship here, then, is one of the central motifs of this story. It's it's called Winter's King. It concludes with this war about who gets to be king. And I have to say that this surprised me, not in terms of this story alone, but because so much of the left hand of darkness is actually about short-sighted political leadership and is a real critique of politicians that seems more in line with the milieu of the 1960s. So my question here is simply is, is are we supposed to, to take something from this kind of merry old England royalism that we get here in the plot of this story, or is this about literature here is this and i guess really just thinking about this in terms of what we have been spending a lot of time uh, more than a year really on gene wolf of seeing heavy doses of political philosophy and political ideology is that something that's going on here or is this about genre i want to begin by reading this sort of curious passage that we skimmed over in our recap because it is a big story as you say when the scientists on Alul are talking about how strong the mind of Argaven is and how right she was to leave her planet. The scientist says this after Mr. Harga or Argaven says that she did the right thing. You did. Abdication, suicide, or escape were the only acts of consequence which you could have committed of your own volition freely. They counted on your moral veto on suicide and your counsel's vote on abdication. But being possessed by ambition themselves, they forgot the possibility of abnegation and left one door open for you, a door which only a strong-minded person, if you'll pardon my literalness, could choose to go through. And I really must read up on this other mind science of yours. What do you call it? Foretelling? Thought it was some occultish trash, but quite evidently. And here the scientist kind of trails off. And it's strange to me that this idea of foretelling comes up in the story. First of all, we get a lot of sense of the character of a good leader in that paragraph. It's this strong of mind and a person who has a sense of self-sacrifice that is strong enough to step down from power when the wrong people want to take power. And the wrong sorts of leaders are those who are possessed solely of ambition, of personal ambition and nothing else. So I think that's a really crucial paragraph in the story. But as it connects to what we're calling like fate or destiny, all of this ties into the story through this notion of foretelling, which... Le Guin here is using the old wolf trick of trailing off in the middle of a sentence <laughs> to perhaps foreshadow Emran's own destruction, that the this d destruction of this kingdom was inevitable through bad leadership, through counting on the council to squabble and not allow the figurehead that allows their power to remain uh, go away, because if they do, they lose their power. The source of their power is the king allowing them to have that power. But Emran is clearly not a strong enough figure to corral the council and to keep them united so that the kingdom remains united, and also is the paranoid tyrant that Argaven fears she will become through this mind forming. And the real question that remains for me about this question of kingship is whether Emran 
herself was mind-formed at some point, as maybe members of the council were responsible for this sort of thing, whether Gerer herself or itself was the architect behind this mind-forming, and once the king was out of the way, was able to repeat the process with Emran, or whether this is just Le Guin thinking about the fate of kingdoms, of succession and airship, and eventually with a bad egg, you can destroy the work that the first of your name has done to build that legacy. I think Le Guin is also doing a lot with the genre here, which maybe we can talk about as a, as a separate breakout question. But in terms of the question of the kingship, I think she has a very clear idea of what makes a good leader. And maybe as she's looking at the world moving into the 1970s, she sees people full of raw ambition and not full of that sense of sacrifice that a good king has in all the good king stories. I think your suspicion that Emran was also mind-controlled here by these same villainous forces, these these bad advisors, these selfish, wicked advisors, I think that instinct, I think that suspicion is completely right. I think that's what's going on here. Le Guin then is, is using a trick here, though, right? Because we're given two characters who face the same adversity, and one of them overcomes it by doing the right thing, and the other clearly does not. The one succumbs to it. And this is an idea in kingship that goes all the way back to antiquity, but I think is probably most well-known from our literature of the Middle Ages, and really we're talking about King Arthur here. That's the most famous example of this, but this is the idea that the health and, and safety and prosperity of the kingdom is connected to the virtue of of the king. In medieval literature and in Arthurian story, that is all about the king's rightness with God or sometimes specifically with with Christ. It's about being a a moral Christian, fearing and and obeying God, being the vicar of Christ. That's all gone here because this is a science fiction story, but we still get this same sense that if the king is bad, then the state is bad. And if the king is good, then the state will be good. This is about virtue. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that that's really clear in this story that this is a story about the wish for a good king to return. And we're even treated to Arthurian imagery. As the king returns on the island where, you know, the visitors and aliens take off and leave. And this is very much the sort of imagery of Avalon. And the king returns and sets the house back in order. And as such, we have a hope that the land will return to order as well, that that what is lost will be restored. And I think this story is really caught up in these sort of Arthurian tales and imagery uh, where the king is also concerned with alliances with its neighbors and not just its neighbors on its own planet, on its own borders, but also in the whole universe. And I think that's a great innovation that Le Guin has brought to this sort of story as well, to the point where the good king becomes an agent in some regard of the universal harmony that this federation, which is the wrong word, but we'll go with it, is trying to achieve. So Le Guin here is leaning on the medieval tales of Arthur, where we get a lot of fantasy tropes from, and tying them up into a science fiction story. And I think it just works beautifully. And she's such a deft writer and and so knowledgeable of these tropes that she's able to weave them all together in 20 or so pages. What I've read, you know, trilogies or more books about this sort of thing that don't come close to achieving what she achieves in this period of time. Yeah, and this isn't even her best work, right? Like this is actually a pretty early story. She's still clearly getting her footing here and it's still magnificent. She's such a good writer. And as you were saying earlier, Ben, and this has you wanting to go reread The Left Hand of Darkness. I'm feeling very much the same way and wanting to wanting to do more, wanting to read more Le Guin than I than I have. And you've also brought up the the Federation here, and this is where I want to go next. I've got one more thing I want to talk about under my heading of of politics and political ideology. And I've already said that I love the idea of the ecumen or of a household that's composed of various humanoid species and that I like this idea more than I like the idea of a, a federation and the the ecumen citizens who we meet in this story use a lot of family metaphors to describe the relationships among the humanoid species 
And of course, Le Guin hasn't invented this word. She hasn't invented the, the metaphor. Both of them come from ancient Greek. And really, ecumen is probably best known for its use in a Christian context today. But it is a political philosophy. It is a view of human communities that is in contrast, both, I think, with the kingship of winter, but really of our own society. And so the question I, I want to pose here to get us going is, what is Le Guin invoking here with this idea of the ecumen of known worlds? What does her vision of an interstellar polity look like? And of course, how does it compare to some of the others that we get in speculative fiction? We'll talk about the Federation, uh, but we can also bring in some others. Uh, and I know that we don't have much to go on in this story, that there's this whole cycle of novels, novellas, and short stories beyond this that deal with the acumen of known worlds, but let, let's give it a shot just with what we've got here. Well, the first other story I want to bring in outside of this is Anathem by Neil Stevenson, which I think is hugely influenced by, if not just the left hand of darkness, then this whole idea of the acumen of known worlds, where he takes a history of monks and monasteries and turns it into a sort of secular organization in the modern world that's interested in the same sorts of things that monks ought to be concerned with, harmony with your neighbors, peace, advancement of knowledge, uh, brotherhood, all of these sorts of things, and takes God out of the picture and says what remains, if anything, uh, in this sort of community. And I think the the point Stevenson is trying to make is that human communities are formed around recognizing the similarities and commonalities we have for one another and the ability to appreciate differences, which is a line that comes up in this story that Axed, the plenipotentiary, uh, brings up and says, what makes all of us the same when you know we were settled ages ago is you know maybe our human basis, our basis in the Hain, but it's our ability to appreciate our differences. And our differences are what make us unique. And that's not a problem. We can still be harmonious. And it's a fascinating worldview. And I really think Le Guin is trying to do something similar with these stories, which are always analogous to the different cultures that live together on Earth and saying that we can appreciate our differences without perhaps having to come to blows. And maybe even that there's some concern about leaders being controlled by other powers, even if it brings a greater order to a people. So I, I, I don't know at the end of this story whether we're left with a hopeful note that Argaven returns under the sort of education and uh, indoctrination by the ecumen, which is a warm word. As you say, it's about household and especially related to Christianity. When you talk about ecumenical relationships, you're talking about different sects of Christianity that allow one another on some level to take communion, to celebrate the same feast, though they believe maybe some really different things about what the Bible means, what theology is. And so there's a real hopefulness for me wrapped up in the word ecumen and ecumenical. I love theories of household. Um, but at the same time, I can't help but feel a sinister edge in this story to the way Le Guin is paralleling the work of the mind formers and the indoctrination of the ecumen. So that's an open question to me uh, for this story. But I think, I don't know, with all of the sort of tropey imagery she's using here, there's a lot of warmth and a lot of hope at the end of the story. One of the really glaring elements of this, though, one of the things that the Ecumen of Known Worlds has in common with the United Federation of Planets, uh, as it exists in 1969 anyway, is that they both seem to be post-religion. There, There is nothing of religion in this story at all. Uh, the United Federation of Planets, the, the Star Trek world of the original series, is pretty, pretty famously atheistic in the sense of not having a god, not having a religion. And in fact, in particular, of, of viewing religion, actually, as something that gets in the way of harmony and unity. That's not made explicit here 
in this text, but it is an interesting feature that they both have in common, even as Le Guin is, is bringing in this word that, although not always, does most commonly in our world have a religious sense to it. There's a dozen more things we could read to, to suss out what's going on with the acumen of known worlds, and we might need to, to make that a project we'll, we'll take up over the course of the next decade on some of these bonus episodes from time to time. And I think for now we can leave that matter uh, aside, though. Uh, if, you know, if we've got any, uh, any listeners out there who are really up on the heinous cycle, we'd love to know more about it on the, on the forum. But let's move into my last category here, uh, which is time and history. Uh, there's two questions here. Really, actually, what I want to do is just unpack the two metaphors that are invoked in the, the first paragraph of this story. And let's, let's do the photograph metaphor first. So what is Le Guin doing with this metaphor of the photographs, of this, this narrative device of the photographs in this story, this fiction that she is constructing Argivin's story as the description of snapshots taken at various points in her life? For me, this is not an altogether successful technique that Le Guin engages with. A typical short story of this length would probably have uh, chapter breaks, maybe, or section breaks that give us a sense of the flow of time. I think because Le Guin is so interested in the oddness of time in the story, of relative time and real time, and the way that the succession of the kings is upended as a result of this. The old king is the young king, and the new king is the old king, and there's all this kind of weird stuff going on. I think she's trying to lean into how confusing that would seem for a person who is outside of this type of circumstance and expose it in a way that would give us a clearer understanding. And so a snapshot is a frozen moment in time that gives us this picture. It's a visual image. I brought up impressionism before because I think that's really what's going on here. And that's strange because impressionism grows up as a result of the invention of the photograph, being able to expertly detail landscapes and people's faces. And so the artistic response to that was to give their impression of those landscapes or those portraits rather than paint a realistic version of it. This really felt kind of impressionistic to me. There's a competition with television and the visual medium. And Le Guin is trying to tell a story that can only be told in the written word here. And I and I think that's a big part of what's going on. The snapshot also works to, as I said before, freeze time to give us the succession of images where by the time we get to the end of the story, the the first image and the last image are the same image to give us a sense of this time paradox of the thing that causes this chain of events that brings the young king back is unusual and it's a subversion of expectations. But as I said, I don't think it's wholly successful, though I think it's gorgeous writing and the story is really good. Well, I think that's right. I think the snapshot idea here is about moments in time that this story, and this is going to move into the, the last thing I want to talk about, which is really philosophy of history that we get here in this story. She's engaging here in this idea that history is about a, a sequence of events, and in particular, it's about great people doing great things. And she is wanting to examine the important moments in the life of this great figure, to look at those moments in isolation, to give us this impression of what those moments were like, and then to arrange them in an order that explains something to us. Uh, this is a, a type of history that I don't know that anyone has really done as a professional historian since like the 19th century, really, but it makes for a beautiful story here. And in some ways, actually, this idea, this way of doing history as as about great people and great events links up with the theme of kingship here. In fact, our obsession with kings, the idea that the king is the most important person in the realm, feeds into exactly this type of history, which develops uh, side by side with the romantic movement in art and literature, which very much believes in like the spirit uh, of an age and, and spirit of genius in great people. And I think that we're getting some of that here. 
And, and we can see all of this actually just in the first sentence of the story when she kind of puts her cards out on the table. And it's really not even the first sentence. It's the first half of the first sentence. The, the line is this. When whirlpools appear in the onward run of time, and history seems to swirl around a snag, as in the curious matter of the succession of Carhide. Right, this idea of, again, as in a story by John V. Marsh, we have time as a, a body of water. It's a, it seems to be a river here, right, running its course, but there are whirlpools in it, right, where uh, things will go around and, and there's something dangerous happening there. But history here is something that is a, a separate object that is traveling on this river of time and things can happen to it. It can swirl around a snag, perhaps swirl around in this whirlpool, which is to say that the history can get stuck in some ways that a sort of progress in a, in some kind of teleology or some kind of narrative can get stuck at these particularly great moments here. Uh, again, this is, this is not the way any professional historian thinks about what history is uh, these days or has for a really long time, but it links up with everything that she's trying to, to do here. The pictures, this metaphor, the essentially the, the time travel, the, the good king versus the bad king, the good king reappearing as if out of time. I think all of these, all of these images, all of these metaphors really kind of uh, work together as a, as a kind of scaffold. I think you're absolutely right. And it is a particularly strong image for the story as the idea of a whirlpool is that the water starts at one point and goes around and returns to that point. And this is exactly what happens to Argaven in this story. They start at one point and are able to return to resume their rightful rule of this planet, of this kingdom with on this planet. And the way that happens is through a snag in time and history sort of travels that whirlpool briefly to tell us the story of this great king. And I think it's a beautiful image for that reason. And I think uh, Le Guin does an incredible job setting up what is going on in the story in the first paragraph, though it might take two full rereads to get the full meaning out of this image. Right. There, there's a reason that Wolf and Le Guin are often mentioned in the same breath. But I think now that we have uh, ourselves come full circle in the uh, whirlpool of this podcast and are back to thinking about Wolf, uh, that's going to do it for this episode. I'm Glenn McDorman. And I'm Brandon Buddha. You can find us in our other creative projects, as always, at claytemplemedia.com. Head on over to the Clay Temple forums and let us know what you thought of Winter's King. Jump in on our conversation uh, about ecumen and uh, how it relates or how it appears elsewhere in the heinous cycle. We'd love to hear more about that for readers with, with more experience with Le Guin. Absolutely. And we just want to take another moment to thank all of our patrons who have supported our podcast and have taken the time out to listen to us and to let other people know about the work we're doing at Clay Temple Media. Thank you so much. But until next time, we greet you and say farewell.